From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen. All right, welcome to the program. It is Monday. We have another big week ahead of us. And as usual, we're going to be joined by some of the best voices, some of the best expert opinions to give us the take, the lowdown, the SP, everything on what's happening in the world, both domestically, if you're in the United States, but also internationally and in Europe as well. We'll cover it all. Uh, today, we're going to have a very interesting discussion in the first hour uh, regarding 9-11 justice. Yes, this is an issue that is still being litigated. We're going to have very important guest on the program, Matt Campbell, and we're going to be talking about the work for the International Center for 9-11 Justice, and Matt's own personal case. We'll have him on the line in the first hour. Looking forward to that conversation uh, to open up that topic as well. Because uh, we need to talk about 9-11, just as we need to talk about all these other events. And in the second hour, we're going to be joined by uh, U.S.-based, Washington, D.C.-based journalist Sam Husseini for the inside track on where the Biden administration is with their new escalations in the Middle East. Uh, U.S. has declared war again. Well, n- not declared war. It's more like an undeclared war of aggression. Another one. First, it was Yemen a few weeks ago. And now it's against Iraq uh, and Syria, allegedly over Iranian activity. But yet the United States can't prove that Iran killed three U.S. soldiers. It lit- it's literally making up the policy as it goes along to justify another military campaign, which was waged outside of congressional approval. I don't even know if they had an executive order. Uh, maybe he'll issue one after the fact. This is what Biden's usually a bit late getting around to these sort of things. So there's no, really no legal basis to it. We'll talk to Sam Husseini about where this place is, the White House and the United States right now. We'll do that in the second hour. And we'll also connect with uh, a great voice uh, for counter-propaganda and cutting through the narratives uh, from New York University. Mark Crispin Miller is going to be joining us as well in the second hour for a discussion on Gaza. This issue is really testing the morality of the United States and legitimacy of the United States as a moral voice on the international scene. We'll talk to Mark about that in the second hour, so we're looking forward to that Uh, conversation as well. Now over to the breaking news. Let's look at this escalation by the United States, another wave of airstrikes and some interesting comments. Uh, I don't know what to say about the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, but we'll have a crack at him right now. Australia is supposedly a member of this uh, U.S. coalition in the Red Sea. I don't know exactly what Australia is providing. Who knows? Maybe moral support, maybe a couple of uh, boats, perhaps. Uh, We don't know. Uh, But they 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 are saying that the the American strikes in Syria and Iraq and Yemen are appropriate and they're proportionate. And that Anthony Albanese doesn't believe that they're going to uh, escalate tensions in the region. So by he doesn't believe that the U.S. escalating tensions in the region is going to escalate tensions in the region. Are you confused? Well, join the club. Uh, Here's what Anthony Albanese says uh, from Australia. We support the actions of the U.S. These are proportionate. Uh, These are retaliatory steps for the actions of 
Iran-backed organizations, and they are not in escalation. I repeat, the U.S. escalation is not an escalation. You have to laugh. Uh, so, he says, we think that the U.S. has got it right, said Anthony Albanese on the Australian Broadcast Corporation, ABC, major interview there. And his comments are pretty uh, atypical or pretty typical for uh, what's coming out of the West right now. Everyone's just basically acting as an apologist uh, for the United States who've basically gone in unilaterally and are trying to provoke the Middle East to escalate. So the U.S. is clearly escalating. They're doing everything possible uh, except to restrain Israel, who is conducting an ongoing genocide. I repeat, an ongoing genocide of the native Palestinian populations in Gaza and the West Bank, for that matter. The Chinese foreign minister has also weighed in on this, uh, and they're basically saying that they oppose any acts of that violate the UN Charter and infringe upon other countries' territorial sovereignty and security. So that's the United States, basically. So the U.S. is not only occupying Syria illegally, 25% of Syrians' territory is being occupied illegally by the United States. They just went in and took it in 2017, and they never left. But you probably haven't heard that because you're watching Western media, and they very conveniently gloss over that violation of the UN Charter. Uh, but they all freaked out, jumped up and down, and decided to sanction the world after Russia intervened militarily to protect the people that Donbass were getting shelled by Nazis in Ukraine for like eight years. Okay, so try to figure that one out. Does it does it make sense? Is it fair? Is there reciprocity in the uh, rules based international order? I don't think so. China urges all parties involved to, quote, earnestly ob observe the international law, remain calm, exercise restraint, prevent tensions in the region from escalating or even spiraling out of control. Basically, they're, they're, they're urging all parties to do the opposite of what the United States are doing. Okay. Uh, to make matters worse, uh, this was meant to deter these uh, Iraqi militias. These are not Iranian proxies. Let me be clear. I'm telling you here, these are not Iranian proxies. These are Iraqi militias. They fall under the Iraqi Ministry of Defense, and they have publicly stated they want the U.S. out of Iraq and Syria. The Syrian resistance forces, of which there are some as well, they want the U.S. out. The Syrian government can't engage with the U.S. directly for fear of triggering a world war, obviously. The U.S. just goes in, squats, does what they want, steals the oil from Syria, etc. So, the, the, what has this worked? Has this deterred anything? Not really. Six U.S.-backed Kurdish proxy fighters, real proxies, Kurds in northeastern Syria, uh, have been killed in a drone strike on a base housing American troops in Syria. This is reported by Al Arabiya. Uh, and it's citing uh, the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces. I know it's it's hilarious, but uh, anyway, they're working with the U.S., the Kurds in Syria. According to the Kurds, the drone targeted a training ground at Al-Omar base in the eastern province of Derizor. That's where the Syrian oil fields are, which the U.S. is squatting and stealing the oil, selling it for cash putting it in a slush fund. Okay, 
tr- that's true facts. So anyway, uh, Kurdish people here are blaming the attack on Syrian-backed mercenaries. So now the Kurds in the U.S. are getting hit inside Syria. No U.S. servicemen were harmed in the incident. Listen, if there were U.S. servicemen harmed, you would not hear about it in Syria because they're there illegally. You only hear about it if they claim or report that they were harmed in Jordan. Okay? Then you'll hear about it. And that gives the U.S. some spurious justification to launch all these strikes. Imagine if those three U.S. soldiers that supposedly were killed in Jordan were actually killed in Syria. Maybe one day we'll find out that was the case, but not before the airstrikes, the shock and awe campaign is unleashed. I'm just saying, I'm throwing that out there at some point in the future. Do not be surprised if you see reports change and people say, oh, actually, they were in Syria after the fact. Just saying, just saying. Brace yourself for that one. Uh, so the Islamic resistance in Iraq, uh, this is one of many PMU, People's Mobilization Units, under the Iraqi Ministry of Defense, they've claimed responsibility for the attack on the Kurds, uh, which it says had been aimed against the U.S. occupation in the Al-Omar oil fields. As I said, the group also published footage on social media showing what it claimed was the launch of a drone towards the base. Okay, that's pretty definitive. A member of Ansar Allah, uh, a.k.a. the Houthis, uh, a political bureau, Mohammed al-Bukhati, has said that the fact that only two countries, the United States and the UK, have so far been carrying out airstrikes on Yemen is a sign of difference among the American-led coalition in the Red Sea. Uh, Bukhari described the attacks that have taken place so far as ineffectual and warned that the spillover from this conflict in Gaza will inevitably result in the end of U.S. hegemony across the region. He said to Press TV, uh, this was recently, I think this was in the last 24 hours. Uh, so there are other, other updates on this, but suffice to say you get the picture. The U.S. claims it was deterring Iran. Iran didn't strike any U.S. troops. Uh, the U.S. claims that they're not escalating, that they're escalating in order to prevent escalation. That is just patently ridiculous. Uh, and the other players in the region, they're not actually supporting the U.S. Uh, on this latest shock and all campaign. Uh, where do you see the Saudis? Uh, where do you see the other Gulf states cheering? and raising their sort of applause for the United States, you don't see it. They're staying quiet and they're seething in the background. The U.S. is accelerating its ultimate demise in the region by doing absolutely the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong people. It's as simple as that, ladies and gentlemen. That is our Middle East summary for today. We will take a break right now and connect our next guest Matt Campbell, and we're going to discuss uh, his case uh, in the International Center for 9-11 Justice. Very important discussion on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Stay right there. TNT's Pella Neuroth-Taylor. We, we need to look, do a lot of recon- deconstruction of these phrases and, and really think about what it means. Because what does far-right mean? I, I'd say that far-right means anything that you don't like. And... Um, it's just a label, a bit like the, the Chinese under Mao, their state press used to call uh, anyone who was an ideological opponent, capitalist pig dogs, whatever. 
And it was just meant to evoke a response, and it was a signal from the rulers to the rule that this is what you should think, without actually having to think. It's 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 a, meant to evoke a sort of Pavlovian reaction that you're a, these are bad guys, and uh, a moderate in in, in our lingo i mean let's see it's foreign coverage the bbc will say the moderate blah 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 party in the third world meaning well they're guys we approve of and then the extremist is someone we don't approve of helen neuroff taylor on today's news talk tnt radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener what's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it you know people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is how ubiquitous it is it's in our cars it's in our homes there are so many new ways to access it it's everywhere to find out more go to tntradio.live the net zero con will leave millions of citizens dependent on state handouts it isn't a theory it's an agenda there is no climate emergency on air 24-7. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this live broadcast here on Monday. I'm your host, Patrick Kenningson. Thank you guys for rejoining us for this important program today. We're going to have a very important discussion as well right now uh, about the International Center for 9-11 Justice, the work that it's doing, uh, and particularly one individual who has a very long-running case uh, right now, and we're going to get some updates on this situation. I want to introduce Matt Campbell. Uh, he is the older brother of Jeff Campbell, who was a British citizen killed on September 11th, 2001 in the World Trade Centers. And while attending uh, various conferences and meetings over the years, also filing his own legal challenges in the UK. Matt Campbell has really discovered a lot about 9-11 and a lot that hasn't really made it properly into the public discourse on this. And besides uh, seeking justice for his family member, uh, Matt's also wanting to air the truth about what happened on 9-11. That's part of it. Um, this is an important subject. I know that uh, this is a long-running uh, controversy and a case, but uh, no better time than the present to get right down to it. I want to welcome onto the program Matt Campbell right now. Matt, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Patrick, for having me on. No, it's our pleasure, uh, Matt. And I want to go to also the headlines right now uh, on the website, the uh, International Center for 9-11 Justice. Uh, here we have family of 9-11 victim vows to keep fighting for a new inquest after the UK Attorney General denies them a second time. The UK's Attorney General's Failure to correctly apply the law for a second time is beyond negligent, says the center. Uh, it is in a cruel obstruction of our rightful pursuit of the truth about Jeff's murder. Jeff, your uh, brother, who was killed uh, in September 11th. Matt, uh, first of all, welcome to the program. And uh, for those of for those of our uh, listeners and viewers on TNT who aren't familiar with your case. Um, if you just give you, give yourself a brief introduction yourself and also, um, this story. Yeah. So, um, my brother, Jeff, um, was attending a conference on the 106th floor of the, uh, the North tower on, on nine 11. And, um, obviously, you know, he died that day. Um, Within a couple of months, I started to question things about um, what we were being told. Uh, in particular, it was um, triggered by uh, 
an article written by the late uh, John Pilger, who sadly just uh, passed away. And um, yeah, I, I, I've been fighting this now. I mean, we've got 22 and a half years on. Um, for about 10 years, I've been wanting to get my brother's inquest reopened. And so to, to say it briefly, basically his remains were identified. They were repatriated back to the UK and along with nine other British victims, um, an inquest was held. This was back in uh, January 2013. Um, it was very much a kind of tick the box, rubber stamp kind of um, process. My brother's life and death was discussed in about three minutes. The whole inquest was done in about um, 100 minutes. Um, and, you know, very much just copy and paste of the official narrative. And within about a year of that, I just started to think, actually, there's a lot of evidence out there that points towards the fact that the towers were demolished and not just brought down by a, a plane and the, and the fires, et cetera. And um, knowing what I know now, which is basically no investigation was done whatsoever, which, you know, by law, the coroner is supposed to investigate how someone died, how they came about their death. Um, I mean, to just do a sort of cut and paste job from the 9-11 Commission report, um, which is shocking in itself anyway. Um, and so, yeah, a couple of years ago, um, we submitted a two and a half thousand page application to the coroner. And that's under the 1988 Coroners Act. It's a mechanism by which families of um, deceased people, where you believe that, you know, justice has not been done or the truth has not been told, there's a mechanism to try and get that inquest reopened. And so that's what we, we tried to do. Um, they sat on it for nearly two years. And this is um, last June and turned around and said they're denying permission, even though we gave them abundant new evidence that wasn't considered at the first inquest um, and and also just insufficiency of inquiry. So they, they basically denied us then. We threatened uh, judicial review, which is a, a legal mechanism to challenge um, you know, what an authority has, has um, made in, in terms of a decision. Uh, surprisingly, they backed down. So we were at this stage, this is last September, pretty confident, okay, they've got to make a new decision. It's going to be a positive one. And, you know, my brother's inquest will be, will be reopened. Fast forward to January, beginning of this year. Um, yeah, they denied it for a second time. And, and that's pretty much, you know, where we're at right now. Um, and I can go into more detail about what the next um, stage is. But yeah, I mean, it's disgusting that they've, you know, we're talking now two and a half years from when we first made that initial application and the second denial, there's not really anything new. They're just making some more broad sort of statements as to, you know, why they're denying um, us the right to have a new inquest. So the British government effectively, or the establishment, the judiciary stonewalling you uh, on this issue, on this case. And uh, what, what, why do you think the, I know they're giving their, you know, uh, <clears throat> boilerplate reasons for it. Matt, but why do you think uh, there is a uh, sort of fear by the establishment to reopen a case like this? What what might they be afraid of? Um, well, I mean, I think firstly, it's just standard lawfare. They're, they're trying to exhaust you both time-wise and money-wise. I mean, that, that for sure is going on. Um, I think the biggest concern they've got, and this is without even going into the details of of what happened, is is simply a family member is trying to bring into court um, evidence that contradicts an official narrative. 
and in this case, obviously, of something quite big, uh, be it 9-11. Um, I, I think it's a precedent they're very scared of setting um, and they're going to do everything they can to try and stop us getting um, this new evidence into, into a court. And, and so you, you've actually discovered some interesting things uh, over the years through this investigation, through your research as well, and also bringing in the research of others, um, something that would be considered new uh, into the, you know, if you add what you've discovered into the official 9-11 uh, report, the official story, it does change things considerably, uh, but also changes the liability, it changes the culpability from a legal standpoint. If you have a let's say other parties or foreknowledge of the event or uh, maybe a different explanation as to how the uh, Twin Towers came down that day. Um, these are all questions that I think that are raised uh, through such an investigation. What are the most compelling pieces of evidence that you have uh, personally discovered um, throughout this process over these years, Matthew? Well, I think a lot of the... Um evidence has come to light through the work of you mentioned other scholars and um organizations like architect and engineers for 9-11 truth um this is evidence of uh, the use of explosives there's uh, traces of um thematic uh, reactions uh you've got high temperatures um which you know can't be reached through normal office fires you've got uh, just purely looking at the physics you've got the collapse of the north tower which is Obviously, the tower my brother was in, um, it fell at a constant acceleration for about the first four seconds. It, it can't be doing that if it's trying to destroy what's underneath it. It has to deaccelerate. Um, we have uh, numerous eyewitness testimony. That's from first responders, that's police officers, um, medics, etc., who were there, who were witnesses to explosions, flashes, bombs, etc. We have expert witnesses who I said bring the, the, the chemistry, the physics, et cetera, as to why um, the towers couldn't possibly have come down, um, you know, due to plane impact and, and office fires. Um, I mean, there's lots of other stuff, you know, I've looked at it over the years, but I mean, the actual scope of an inquest is quite narrow. It is really only concerned with what caused someone's death. Um, so it doesn't really go into, you know, who did it or you know the, the larger groups of, of people who may or may not have had a role uh in the attacks um which in some respect is frustrating because there is a lot of stuff that's still being covered up today i won't go into it but you know when you look at the the five legal firms representing the families in the, the saudi lawsuits which you know right from almost day one um that was covered up by the us uh, authorities um and so yeah it's it's just it's narrow in scope but it's something that we a, have the mechanism, like I said, through this uh, 1988 Coroner's Act. There is a process. It's well-trodden path. Lots of families have done that when they've lost someone and they don't agree with what the official um, you know, explanation is for their death. Um, and it's it's just frustrating that you know, I'm still having to fight. And it's not just me. It's my, my family as well, you know, 22 and a half years on. Um, and, and, yeah, they are stonewalling and they are um, making it as hard as possible to get this back into uh, into a court. 
And I'm um, just looking at the reporting here, uh, and I encourage people to go to the International Center for 9-11 Justice, that's IC911.org, IC911.org. Hopefully we'll put that uh, on the Chiron uh, there just below uh, where our uh, images are right now. But um, this is an interesting passage here, which relates to what you're saying, uh, Matt, which is the Solicitor General's only basis for the assertion they're making is to cite reports issued by the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology and to claim falsely that they represent a clear consensus view on the cause of the Twin Towers collapse. So we see this quite a lot, Matt, with other controversies where you have institutions uh, that make initial rulings. Those rulings are challenged. The whistleblowers are then demonized. Uh, Any contradictory or counter narratives are suppressed the uh, the opcw is a good example with the duma chemical weapons attacks uh in syria piers robinson part of the uh, research group that's been leading the opposition on that they've all been attacked uh and here we have anybody challenging nist or the united the united states national institute of standards and technology so this ultimate deference to these institutions we see this in Britain a lot. They will defer to the United States, and that's it. Britain doesn't have any interest in independently finding out any facts or what happens. We're fine. The, this is what the U.S. says. We're good with that. Move on, basically. And I think your case kind of really exposes that sort of level of, I don't know, this kind of opine complicity um, that we see in this relationship between the British establishment and the U.S. It's amazing, Matt, that a relatively small case like yours in in the grand scheme of things exposes these massive issues that are just prevalent uh, in, in the international system. Your thoughts? Well, I mean, the, the frustrating thing about them actually citing the, uh, the NIST report is, A, it wasn't even put in front of the coroner. So th- their arguments for not allowing us to have a new inquest is, oh, but there's a report over here. I mean, that's not applying the law. That's not what the coroner, you know, should have done. Uh, And in any case, the the NIST report only goes up to collapse initiation. It doesn't actually go into what caused the towers and how they actually came down and ultimately how my brother was killed. Um, So they're kind of deferring to, yes, an official body, but it has no relevance whatsoever to certainly the new evidence that we put in front of them in front of the uh, the attorney general because nist doesn't look at or even acknowledge or discuss um the, the possible use of ex- explosives um i mean there's there's you know i'm, I'm sure you've read the um the, the response that they gave us i mean they're, they're talking about our evidence not being credible but in the same breath they're saying but we're not going to um have any experts actually look at your evidence they've not given any rational uh examples of why our evidence isn't credible it's it's pretty much more of what they did last june um which is it's it's frustrating um i'm just hopeful that you know we can raise enough funds to apply for judicial review again um and you know hopefully this time they'll either let us go to court because i think we'll have better luck there than them constantly hiding behind these decisions that are, you know, unlawful and irrational that the Attorney General seems to think they can get away with, with doing and making, you know, time and time again. 
You know, I, I think a lot of the evidence, especially in recent years, is very compelling. Uh, you look at the work of Dr. Leroy Halsey from the University of Alaska Fairbanks on the Building 7 phenomenon. And, you know, from a, a structural engineering point of view, from a scientific point of view, uh, an exhaustive study, the conclusions are uh, pretty clear uh, at the end of that. And I have yet to see anybody to properly refute um, these findings uh, by Halsey uh, and al also his other colleagues from the organization which you mentioned before, uh, Engineers and Architects for 9-11 Truth, um, there haven't, hasn't really been any real uh, ability to refute those claims. And the evidence that they're putting forward, the analysis they're putting forward, certainly in a court of law, uh, that is should be, in a, or an inquest, an inquiry, should be concerned with the facts uh, in order to get the historical record correct especially on such an important event like 9-11 that transformed uh, the geopolitical landscape. Uh, it transformed the Middle East uh, for maybe for, for generations. Wouldn't you want to get the truth? Wouldn't you want to get to the facts? Eventually, Matt, eventually those facts are going to be accepted as the, the, the consensus story, but not now, not yet. But eventually... They will. History shows that eventually the truth will come out. Your 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 thoughts on on that side of things? I mean, yeah, very much so. Uh, eventually, the truth will come out. Um, you know, I hope we we're at that point now. Um, it seems you have to sort of have a minimum sort of twenty years. I look back at historical cases of say Bloody Sunday, um, Hillsborough, etc. You, you do need a passage of time. Um, you know, before what probably family members were screaming out loud way back from day one, you know, finally gets gets heard. Um, I mean, you mentioned Building 7. I mean, it is part of our application. Obviously, my brother wasn't in that building. I mean, the evidence is compelling. But, you know, what's, what's really frustrating, and I sort of sense it from my barrister a lot, is um, the level of evidence or the amount of evidence we have, we, we're so far above a kind of threshold that would normally be required in order to to trigger a new inquest. We can absolutely 100% prove that there was no inquiry whatsoever into how my brother um, died. And it, it, it should be just straightforward. We shouldn't be having to have this, this battle in the legal system. But like I said, I mean, I'm more confident that actually once we go into the High Court, um, you know, that's, that's where we will get some semblance of justice because their hand will be forced. Um, you know, the Attorney General can kind of hide, they can do these letters which don't really make, you know, the, the public light of day. Whereas in a court of law, that's everything's going to be on record. And I, I just I'm more hopeful that we would actually get um, more justice there. But it is it's a long process. And like I said, you know, our first step is to get this judicial review of this, um, you know, frustrating second decision that's denied us again. Certainly, I think I think you're you're not alone, uh, Matt. There's a lot of other people, victims, families. There's a lot of residents in New York, Americans, people around the world that want to see that happen. Um, and I think your your case is a really important part of that. But before we uh, before we wrap this segment up, Matthew, I want you to just to just to give us an idea, give us give us your thoughts. What what has this been like? This long running battle. What has this been like for you personally and your family? Because this has been going on now for over two decades. Um, if you can just talk about that, um, I think a lot of people would really like to to know more about that. Yeah, I mean, like I said, within a couple of months, I started questioning things. I, I absolutely hated what was going on in Afghanistan and then obviously Iraq, which was just 
made up stuff for reasons why uh, there was war in Iraq. Um, and I found it particularly hard just the more evidence came out, and this is not just focused on um, how the towers came down. This is you know, other things like the CIA actively protecting two of the hijackers, um, you know, the, the involvement of Saudi intelligence, Saudi government, et cetera, which, uh, you know, bit by bit has come out over the years. It's frustrating. And, and I found it really hard the, the first 10 years, I'll tell you the truth, um, feeling that, you know, I mean, I felt completely powerless. I didn't know what to do, um, you know, compounded by the fact I'm over here in the UK, um, you know, all the legal stuff, all the the families that were vocal seemed to be, you know, US based. Um, and, I, and I think it it really, it was when I, I, I guess I went public with how I felt back in um, 2013. And I, I did a, um, a few documentaries um, and, yeah, I just connected with people and then I, I kind of thought, actually, no, there is a way, you know, of fighting this. There is evidence out there. Um, it's just it's that thing of, you know, like I said, in lawfare, it's it's getting the funds necessary to to mount these kind of challenges because it's not easy. And and for me, the only way to do this in any way it's ever going to be done is through the, the legal system, whether you like the system or not and whether you think it's geared against you. Um, you know, it, it's it's all I, I can do really. I mean, what do they say? The, um, uh, the the wheels of justice turn very slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. I do think there'll be justice eventually. It just might take a long time. Um, unfortunately, time isn't on our side. Um, we have it's it's time sort of um, locked in that we have to respond to this decision by the um, I think it's the third of April which for obviously the barrister needs to do work, et cetera, and we need to raise the funds. We need to raise the funds by the end of this month, basically March 1st. Um, otherwise, we won't be able to mount this legal challenge. So, I mean, the pressure is on to try and – we're trying to raise a scary amount of £60,000. Um, it, it's so frustrating that we should have be forced to do this again. Um, but, um, you know, it, that is lawfare. There's not, not much else we can do. I'm just hopeful that, you know, someone – uh, and people, well, many people will will chip in and and help try and get this. You know, my brother's inquest reopened, and this evidence that no one's ever um, seen in a court of law and, and expose stuff once and for all. And uh, and uh, where where's the best place for people to go to support uh, your campaign, Matt? I know the uh, International Center for 9/11 Justice website, ic911.org. Uh, um, uh, yeah, uh, nine one justice. Yeah, there's uh, a link underneath justice. there. Which, sorry, Patrick. Yeah, there's a link underneath there that takes you to uh, a crowdfunder um, website where, um, yeah, I mean, I, it, the easiest thing is to go to ic911.org and you'll see a link to the uh, inquest and, and raising funds um, for that. But like I said, you know, we've got four weeks basically, just shy of four weeks now to try and raise this this money. So pressure's on. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. The cyclone that's in the north of Australia is kind of unusual for an El Nino season. That's because we have not really had an El Nino season this year in Australia. The Southern Oscillation Index, the longest running measure of the ENSO, or El Nino, La Nina, has not cooperated at all. And we knew this was a problem way back in the Northern Hemisphere fall in our spring because we weren't seeing a lot of typhoons. Usually when you have a big El Nino, you have a lot of typhoons going off 
and we had the third lowest typhoon production on record. So something funky was going on. However, that Southern Oscillation Index is going to crash for the month of February, which means that our fall should be average in Australia. Now, I'm bringing all this up because that crash in February is linked to severe cold in the United States and Europe for February into March. And we're seeing another ferocious storm attacking Norway now. A lot of heavy rain is coming into Europe over the next week. Now, the two times that happened, it turned frigid in Europe. Same thing is going to happen. Mid-February to mid-March will be frigid in Europe. You see all these storms crashing into the United States? Well, guess what? It's going to turn frigid in the United States. In fact, for much of the United States, the worst of the winter is on the way. And just think, it all hinges on looking at the weather around Australia. Isn't that nice? Hands across the water. Australia, the States, and Europe. Kumbaya. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. When the world's endangered animals need help most, when their lives are at greatest risk, when they would otherwise be lost. The International Fund for Animal Welfare is there, taking action to rescue the animals we love, to protect them and their threatened natural habitats. See how you can help animals and people thrive together at joinifall.org. Patrick Henningsen and TNT. All right, folks, welcome back. Welcome back to the program. We're still now number one, this live broadcast. Uh, thank you very much. Our previous guest, Matt Campbell, extremely difficult uh, issue, especially for him and his family, and more broadly, just an issue that so many people have questions about. Uh, they don't feel like they're being told the truth. They haven't done for decades uh, on the issue of 9-11, and uh, Matt's case really kind of brings it all into the light. Uh, so very important appeal, very important campaign that he is uh, currently doing. We'll drop the links in the TNT chat room there for 911. 9-11 Justice, the IC911.org, IC911.org. There you can find information of how to uh, support this effort going forward. Very important, very important indeed. Uh, we're going to be joined in a, just a minute or two by our intrepid correspondent, Basil Valentine, uh, for some very important updates on breaking news. Uh, but suffice to say, 9-11, the issue is important. Uh, why is this important? Because there quite possibly, quite likely, have been a number of lies that were told, official lies, about the attacks of September 11th. Those official lies were used to fuel uh, one of the worst uh, foreign policy series of events, um, interventions, military interventions, wars, the most disastrous in the modern era that unfolded as in the aftermath of September 11th, okay? So if there were lies in the official explanation, those lies were covering up the truth, but those lies were used to pave the way for death and destruction. And this happens so many times, time and time again. Another good example, October 7th, or what they call 10-7, 10-7, the attacks of October 7th. Supposedly Hamas did X, Y, and Z, killed 40 beheaded babies, committed mass rape, went on a rapacious uh, debauchery, butchery spree uh, throughout Israel, killing 
more people in one day, more Jews died on uh, October 7th, innocent civilians than any time since the Holocaust. That's the general narrative there. That was used, that narrative, in order to justify what you're seeing now, what's unfolded over the last four months, uh, the, the the slaughter of 30 plus thousand Palestinian civilians, among them 15,000 children, uh, many thousands of women as well, okay, and genocide. So the lies are used as the pretext for illegal wars, for genocide, and throughout history, time and time again, we see this theme happening over and over again. That's why it's important to question these lies. There's so many other examples of this. Smaller examples, I'll give you one or two. Uh, these supposed chemical weapons attacks in Syria were used as justification for attacks on Syria by the United States and Britain, uh, by miss cruise missile strikes, airstrikes against various targets, okay, based on lies, okay, based on lies. Where's the evidence of this chemical weapons attack? It turns out there is none, okay? A lot of it's fabricated. Uh, whistleblowers from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons have testified to this fact. Even the former director of the OPCW has testified as much. And their their reward for blowing the whistle is to be targeted uh, and to be abused and harassed and threatened. Okay? Why? Because you need to protect the lies. There's another lie was put forward by Susan Rice, who was a Democrat Party operative uh, serving in the, I believe, previous administrations, Obama administration, and so forth. She put out a lie on the eve of the uh, Libya bombing raid by NATO, that Gaddafi was issuing Viagra to his troops to go out and commit mass rape. Turned out to be a totally fabricated story. But that ran on every headline right across the world over and over again. So we've seen this exact pattern happen time and time again. It's getting old by now. So Susan Rice's Viagra rape story was picked up by a number of outlets, including, I dare say, Al Jazeera. And they pushed this across, and it, it got the public behind uh, a regime change operation against Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. You remember when this happened back in 2011? So, again, these lies are used time and time again time and time again to justify some of the worst war crimes and crimes against humanity that there possibly are. So anyway, uh, we'll get on to some more of these lies uh, in the second hour when we talk to our guests. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we're going to go over to our uh, intrepid correspondent, uh, Basil Valentine, who is joining us, I believe, uh, on the line right now, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I, I do see Basil up in the room. Uh, let me see if they can give a signal whether he's uh, ready or not. Yeah, I'm ready to go. Okay. Uh, Basil Valentine, thank you for joining us at TNT Today's News Talk. Uh, good afternoon, Patrick. Good to be with you. First of all, uh, Matt Campbell, a fascinating segment. Um, but he said he felt that the passage of time was necessary for the truth to come out. And I hope he's right, but... If we look at what uh, Peter Dale Scott termed the other great deep event of modern times, uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, of course, there's plenty of evidence out there to say that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald could not possibly have assassinated 
the president of the United States, let alone do it all by himself. But that remains the official position and the one taken by the mainstream media. And that was over 60 years ago now. So, you know, unfortunately, um, while people all around the world know that the official version of events, the official conspiracy theory is some kind of fairy story, getting governments and corporate media to admit it and change their position, that ain't easy. So on the JFK story, Lee Harvey Oswald was the patsy. A lot of people will, you know, accept and agree that that was indeed the case. But that he was branded at the time as a communist sympathizer um, with with connections to the Soviet Union and to Castro. So that immediately put in the frame the idea that some foreign actors or adversaries of the U.S. were somehow micromanaging this lone gunman. And that fed into support for the Cold War. So again, a lie which is used to justify some kind of broader outrageous uh, uh, foreign policy or strategy by Western powers. Is that a fair assessment of the, the, the JFK lie? Well, there was even more to it than that, Patrick. <laughs> uh, yeah. Multi-multi-layered um, conspiracy um you know people will say oh somebody would have talked well lots of people talked and they got killed for talking um the late richard belzer wrote a book about the, all the material witnesses to the jfk assassination you know dorothy kilgallen uh officer tippett you name it um george de morin shield all sorts of people associated with the case who met untimely early deaths some Need people would these. say that we're living with the some people would say of course that we're living with the consequences today uh with the situation in the middle east because it's become a more accepted currency amongst jfk researchers these days uh, and in fact this is a a theory that's been given a good airing on the internet particularly on the x platform in recent weeks um is that uh, one of the prime motives for the assassination of John F. Kennedy was that he wanted to prevent Israel from obtaining nuclear weapons and uh, that the uh, the mob that killed him, the organized crime network, was ultimately linked to Tel Aviv. Um, and, and of course, you could say that Arab nations surrounding Israel may be would be a lot more hostile, actively so, if it wasn't for the fact that Israel is in possession of undeclared nuclear weapons, uh, which it's made it quite clear it's willing to use in the event of the integrity of Israel and the security of the state ever being threatened. I wonder how much of a of a impediment that is to other countries uh, moving in to restrain Israel. Certainly, if there was ever a need for military intervention in the Middle East right now to stop uh, a, a, a rogue state, it's now, and it's against. It should be, you know, there should be Western countries mobilizing to go in and create some kind of a humanitarian buffer between the IDF and the native Palestinian population, which they are 
killing at an alarming rate, wouldn't you say so? But is that nuclear question the thing that's preventing that? Well, it's one of the things. Um, you know, let's just consider for a moment, 20 Palestinians were killed over the weekend in Israeli strikes on Rafah, a city previously designated a safe zone by the Israeli military and to which hundreds of thousands of Palestinians have fled. Uh, Blinken is today in Saudi Arabia, supposedly trying to broker a lasting truce. Uh, whether it's a truce or a permanent ceasefire is the sticking point. Hamas want a permanent ceasefire. The Israelis only want a temporary one to get their hostages back and then carry on with the killing. Blinken is apparently under pressure to get some sort of truce before the Israelis start an even heavier bombardment of what is supposedly the last safe place in the entire Gaza Strip, Rafa having killed 20 people there over the weekend. But if we, let's just think for a moment. Oh, since the ICJ ruling, which was 10 days ago now, the Thursday, Friday before last, uh, Israel's killed about 1,500 Palestinian civilians. Now, think for a moment if those were Israeli civilians and the howls, the screaming and shouting, the wailing of and gnashing of teeth, and indeed the military intervention that would have swiftly followed by the United States and European nations if Israelis were being killed, if Jewish people were being shot like fish in a barrel inside a concentration camp, um, the, the reaction of governments would be very, very different. Of course, populations around the world are indeed revolting against this ongoing genocide. Uh, although you wouldn't know it from the uh, the ICC, the independent, the um, International Criminal Court. Uh, its Chief Justice Karim Khan uh, seems compromised, certainly paralysed, unable to do anything at all. It's ten days since the ICJ ruled there was a plausible case that Israel is committing genocide, and although he was very quick to charge Vladimir Putin. Uh, who is now a wanted man around the world, meaning he has great difficulty traveling overseas. No such edict has been issued on Netanyahu, even though he is responsible for thousands and thousands more innocent deaths. So uh, it's interesting you brought up Kareem Khan uh, from the the International Criminal Court in The Hague, different from the ICJ, the ICJ, the International Courts of Justice, is for countries to take other countries to court. The ICC is a criminal court to prosecute individuals. Um, so the two do work together, and they are sort of under a similar aegis, but the ICJ is, is firmly under the United Nations. The ICC is somewhat more um, independent. Kareem Khan was there. You remember he was down in Rafa. Remember that it just a few a few months ago, he was uh, making statements in the press saying this is outrageous what Israel's doing and we need to look into this. And we all thought, Basil, that something was coming down the pipeline. I mean, something at least in a sort of timely manner, maybe in weeks or months. But here we are three months later and absolutely nothing. Um, a lot of people will accuse 
the uh, Kareem Khan and the ICC of being strong-armed behind the scenes by the United States or Britain doing the quiet strong-arming uh, on behalf of the United States. Is that a fair accusation? Probably a bit of both, yeah. Probably a combination of the United States and United Kingdom leaning on him. Maybe they've got, maybe they've got something on him, you know. Uh, we just don't know, but uh, you know his inactivity is criminal in its own right. I mean, the ICJ ruling uh, was that Israel had to immediately stop all activities that endangered the lives of Palestinians. Yet they're actually doing the reverse. Only this morning, the Israeli Navy attacked an aid convoy. So on the one hand, you've got uh, Israeli civilians blocking aid in trucks from entering the Gaza Strip uh, with people shouting that they want to starve everybody to death if they possibly can. Uh, and then you've got the Israeli Navy, on the other hand, firing missiles from the uh, from the sea at any recognizable aid convoys. This is all in direct contravention of the ICJ ruling. But where is the global outrage? Uh, I mean, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society has reported this morning, for example, that Israeli forces have detained the general manager and administrative director of the Al Amal Hospital in Khan Yunis um, in central Gaza. Khan Yunis has been under heavy bombardment after having been previously uh, told it was a safe area. But what is Israel doing? Uh, spiriting away hospital managers and directors. What do these people have to do with Hamas? <laughs> yeah, they're 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 crypto uh, Hamas militants in white coats attending to the sick uh, and the dying. That's uh, what Israel claims. Anyway, it's absolutely ridiculous. They're still pushing this canard uh, after all these months. Unbelievable. And I might add, uh, more medical staff have been targeted and killed uh, in these just short four months uh, than uh, pretty much any other conflict that the, the world has seen uh, in the modern era. Uh, and the number of journalists as well have been killed, some clearly targeted, according to uh, uh, many evidentiary accounts. Uh, more journalists killed in this short four months than, dare I say, the entirety of the Second World War. The entirety of the Second World War. Think of the scale of that. It is just unbelievable. It's breathtaking, uh, in fact. And where is the righteous indignation coming out of Washington? Where are all these NGOs uh, demanding that Israel be censured, be brought to heel for these war crimes? It is truly remarkable, Basil Valentine. Uh, we're going to break in a moment. Uh, your final thoughts before we break. Well, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, has said that Tony Blinken, uh, when visiting Israel this week, will press the Israelis to allow more food, water, medicine, and shelter into Gaza. Now, I personally find it absolutely extraordinary that it's even necessary for the Secretary of State to do that, that the Israelis have no business restricting the supply of food, water, and medicine into Gaza, having reduced it to rubble. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're in a very bizarro twilight world here, Patrick, where um, you know, all semblance of international law has been abandoned. We're in effectively a world constitutional crisis. 
because yeah. the highest court, supposedly the highest authority on this planet is being systematically ignored by one rogue nation who have the material, diplomatic and military support of the world's biggest superpower. That's right. And the biggest crime of all, genocide, is being suppressed and covered up as a result. Basil Valentine, thank you very much for joining us this week on today's News Talk TNT. Thank you, Patrick. Here he goes, Basil Valentine, folks. Top of the hour news headlines coming up. Also, a big thank you to Matt Campbell for this hour. we got more coming up on the other side. You want to stay with us, Sam Husseini, Mark Crispin Miller. Big issues. We're going to cover them all in a few minutes. Stay right there.